Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relationship developer at Airton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. Four years ago, I made a decision to move to a smaller town in Canada. Uh, having spent 20 years in Las Vegas, it was a very big decision for my wife and I. Obviously, Las Vegas is full of work. There's uh, it, My plate was overflowing with job offers, some in Las Vegas, some out. But the mere fact that I was in Las Vegas meant I had a lot of people surrounding me from the industry. I had lots of you know, those really random offers at like 8 p.m. to come down to the strip and fix something at 9 p.m. There was, there was no shortage of bustle. There was always something going on, always somebody giving you a call to find something, always somebody to go out for a drink with, always somebody visiting town that you could go and just hang out with. And you, it was really easy to keep your face present in the industry and, and stay relevant. And uh, my wife and I made a decision to move to a small town in Canada four years ago for, for several reasons. One, because we wanted to raise our kids not in Las Vegas. Uh, it was great for Sharon and I as, as uh, entertainment workers, but uh, for our kids, it, we didn't feel like it was the best place to raise kids. So we wanted to come up to Canada and, and put them in the uh, Canadian school system to make sure that they, they learned all their renewable energy sources in French and English we feel like Canada really prioritizes education above, above, especially above Nevada. So today I wanted to have a conversation with somebody else who knows that feeling to be in the entertainment industry, which requires a lot of hustle and a lot of phone calls, but has also made the decision to live in a small town where the, the work isn't always immediately present. And, and basically we have to we have to work a little extra hard to remain relevant and we have to work a little extra hard to make sure that everybody knows that we are staying on our game and that we are, we're willing to fly anywhere. We're, we're close to an airport just like anybody else. And so please welcome Michael Herkimer. He is a lighting designer and programmer at Herc LX. He is uh, calling in today from Niagara Falls. Thanks so much for taking time to hang out with me today, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. I love the podcast. I'm an adamant listener. And thank uh, you so yeah, much. I'm really happy to be here, man. When did you decide or was a decision for you to remain in Niagara Falls? Well, it's kind of funny. I was in Toronto for 10 years. It was so good to me. I think all the pros you just listed living in Vegas were a lot of the things I was experiencing. There weren't a lot of cons in my opinion. I was loving being so close to the industry, being, it was easy to stay relevant. It was easy to pick up those last minute weird gigs that often flowered into these other things. That was all awesome. I actually kind of wanted to branch out more. So I pulled out of Toronto, a town that I still love. Uh, and I moved to Los Angeles, which is even more yeah, that's the natural arc. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to move from one to and get busier. Absolutely. Did that and, you know, got into the town, uh, had some contacts, started leaning on them and branching out a little more. And a lot of my lunch meetings with friends that took, you know, three hours as a result of traffic in that town. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of my lunch meetings kind of ended with, okay, cool. You know, like, let's, let's work together. When are we going to work together? And I had nothing kind of to say other than, well, can we look at, you know, a year or two from now? Cause I'm locked into this album cycle or I'm locked into that album cycle. And I quickly became to realize quickly came to realize that uh, 
although it's a great place to, to go to build something, if I was already working, it, it left me with little opportunity to make those new and meaningful relationships, which was the whole reason I moved there. Um, and that kind of prompted me to think, well, I'm spending more money here. Spending a lot more time, you know, traveling in and traveling out as a result of being on the West Coast. Like, am I am I here for the betterment of my career or am I here because this was a dream of mine to move to L.A. and, you know, work on bigger stuff? And I quickly realized that I could be anywhere and work from anywhere. So I figured, why not work next to my parents and my family and have somewhat of a home life? Right. So coming home to Niagara Falls, it's funny. I've only ever been busier since and uh, it really hasn't slowed me down. Now, I don't think I give the advice to someone coming up in the industry to move to a small town because there's a lot of challenges that come with it. But, you know, there, there is a, a point in time mm -hmm. where everyone gets to make this decision of do you want it? Do you want to stay or do you want to go? And for, for me, the natural arc was, you know, to develop a family life. I wanted to have kids. I wanted to, you know, get married one day and popping in and out of LA wasn't going to provide that for me. Now, if I had done it at a younger age where I could have built more of an infrastructure before things took off, would this be a different story? Maybe, you know, maybe it would have been home, but um, doing it later on in my career just reinforced, okay, what's important? Family, friends, support system, because, you know, at the end of the day or at the end of your life, it's not going to be, I'd love to think that all the people I've done shows with, they're going to be there <laughs> at the very end. And I'm sure some of them will be, but you got to remember who was there before all that. And it's your family. It's your friends, you know? Yeah. It, it's, it's weird. It feels like a very natural arc. Like our goal is to get as busy as possible, make as many contacts as possible. And then we need to hope and pray and wish that that was enough so that we can kind of step out because doing that, that grind day in and day out, it, it's taxing, you know, to just still be making connections. We're only built for, you know, a hundred connections in our brain, our little monkey brains. We can only hold, I think some of the smartest of us, we can hold maybe 500 connections in our brain to, to keep going above and beyond that. It's, it's kind of, you get diminishing returns and then you start to, you start to question what you're doing it for. Yeah. You never want to leave anyone behind or forget anyone. Like I, I'm a diehard, uh, just loyal person to the people that help me come up in the industry. And, and I never want to forget anyone. Uh, I'm willing to do a favor for almost anyone that's helped me along the way, subscribing to the, you know, you see everyone on the way up that you see on the way down mentality. But at some point, uh, for your own growth and the betterment of those around you, you have to realize that that, that just can't be everyone. We're, we're not designed to have this many contacts. Thank God for iPhones. Because how many times have you popped into a city and thought, oh my God, you know, there's the dude that saved my life on that festival. And you just want to like thank him again and reinforce um, how thankful you were for that experience. And how many times have you pulled out your phone to search the contact to remember the guy's proper name? And uh, I always feel a little crappy that you have to do that, but I don't. I don't think I'm alone. No, I do it at uh, I do it at LDI all the time. I will wait to go introduce myself and I'll check my phone, and it, it's usually not their name. <laughs> I'm usually searching uh, Alter Bridge. That guy was the LD for Alter Bridge. Yeah. Right? Okay, Alter Bridge, and I'll know Alter Bridge, and they'll go, oh, that's him. That's that's the guy. That's the yeah. guy. Life hack, what I do is I store everyone as anything they're associated with. I'll store them as Alter Ridge, Lighting, slash LD, slash the city they're from. This way, yep. it's a quick quick punch up in the phone, right? Because I hate when I don't remember, man. I hate it. We're, we're, we have to. We've delegated so much information to our phones now that uh, because we can't hold enough, you know, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not stuck to any one city anymore. You don't just to inherit the the family store from from your father anymore or your uncle you just we have to branch out we have to go from we're intercontinental businessmen now <laughs> i never thought of it that way but yeah we absolutely are and if you don't take if you don't manage it it gets away from you pretty quickly uh i want to find out how you got how you've settled because as far as I remember, you started even before March 
trying to take a break. Is that accurate? Y'all, that's a hundred percent accurate. What a, uh, what a flop on my part, but, uh, I took six months off for the first time in my career ever. Uh, oh. really first time that I'd taken more than two weeks off, like really, uh, before this all started at the advice of some, uh, some, uh, mentors that I, I really appreciated their, 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 their um, they're concerned for me, but a lot of people were saying, you know, you're going to burn out. This is going to come back to bite you. You got to approach some work-life balance. And I always thought, yeah, 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 old man, you know, I'll be, I'll be okay. I'm just going to keep going back into the fire, keep going back into the fire. And I started to notice that it was uh, pretty hard to maintain, you know, your happiness, your, your, your energy level. So I thought, okay, this is the time I have stuff on the books for next year. Let's, let's do it. Let's take the six months. And right as I was getting ready to go back out on the road, <laughs> everything started flaring up. And it was almost like I, it was surreal. I couldn't believe it was happening. But at the same time, it was a positive thing because after you tour for 10 years straight without a break, uh, I'm telling you, six months was not enough. I had not dealt with anything. I was still is struggling just as much with being content, like just sitting still kind of thing. You know, we're all busy bodies. Uh, so I almost thought, okay, I got a second chance at this. I can, I can settle down a little bit and really go back to the drawing board on what it takes to be, to be happy. So I'm, I'm actually a little thankful for the pandemic. I'm not thankful for what it's done to, you know, our industry at all, but, um, it does take time to figure out what is going on up in your brain. Uh, when you come off this light speed trip that you're on, when you're, when you're working in our industry. It's, it's nuts. Hey, so this might be a very good example of that. Until about five years ago, I could not sit on a beach and enjoy the day. 100%. My wife would love it. She would love sunbathing. And I would try really hard. I would put on shorts, I'd <laughs> grab a, a towel and a beach bag, and I'd go down, and I would sit on a lounge chair, and I could calm my monkey brain for about three minutes and then something would pop into my head of something more productive I could be doing. Yes, and I would well. end up going back to the hotel and I would end up being on my laptop or a phone call or checking my phone or, you know, and ne next thing you know, I'm that guy sitting on a lounge chair, checking my email. Yeah. You know, that's arguably why you you've gotten to where you've gotten in this business too. Right. So to turn your, it's, it's conflicting because you don't want to turn your back on the one thing that, that got you so far ahead, but then you want to turn it off and you can't. And that's, oh. the, that's the scary part for me. Yeah. I used to really, really pride myself on being the guy who would take the phone call at midnight to get on a plane at 8 AM to be in Egypt. But uh, now with kids, I I can't pride myself on that. And it's really hard to turn that off. I, I don't know how to turn it off. I, I mean, I've learned to manage it. It's funny that you bring up the beach scenario. Cause this is like a passionate discussion. Me and Tara have had many times where she's like, why can't you just relax? You know? Uh, and I'm like, I don't want to, that's not how I'm built. That's not what I'm meant to do. I, I, it doesn't make me happy. I, I almost get angry that other people can enjoy it more than I can. But instead of, you know, thinking I needed to change who I was, I realized you just got to find new ways to look at it. Now, if I'm going to go sit on a beach for the day, if I can, you know, get a get someone's kids, uh, someone's friend's kids out to play ball with me for a bit, I can bomb with the kids or I can get dinner going or I can do something to further everyone else's experience for that day. Well, now I'm purposed and I'm still existing in that environment but I need to be purposed. I don't think I'll ever enjoy sitting on a beach. I hate, I hate to say it, but I've come to terms with that over this pandemic. It's just about purposing yourself in a productive way. Not yeah. one that takes you away from your family. The family thing is interesting, right? Because you can turn your back on a lot of things in life, but when you turn your back on your family, you, you feel bad about it because you know, most people know they, they want to be there for their families. So having a baby has made it, more clear to me it's like okay you can you can still exist within this framework you just might be bouncing off the edges of the frame <laughs> congratulations on your new uh, status fatherhood thank you so much the no sleep the club 
the no sleep club, the in, everything has changed. Your whole world is going to be a brand new place for quite some time. I believe it. If roadies weren't meant to be fathers and in the aspect that we, we know how to not sleep, then I sure as hell don't know who is biggest gig we'll ever get. I used to think that being a roadie was the ultimate sleep deprivation experience until I had twins. And now I, uh, I've learned that I was wrong. Yeah. Boy, were you wrong? Yeah. How old is yours now? She's just going on two and a half weeks. So just starting to open her eyes and being, you know, slightly interactive, which it's really cool when you, when you can see them start to see, see you, um, I never thought you could love them more, but it's every time you have an interaction now, it's that bond grows. It's, it's, it's pretty cool, man. If I remember, you also have a brand new dog right now. Yeah. We just decided to do it all. We just did it all at once. We got a, We had a new puppy at the beginning of the pandemic, which for anyone out there who uh, was thinking about getting a puppy during this man, is that ever the time to do it? Cause you're home, you're home to discipline them. You're home to kind of get them in a groove before you uh, unleash them on your spouse. When you leave on the road, like I can't tell you how many stories I've heard from friends who, you know, got, got this new beautiful pit bull and then left on a six month run and they come home and they're like, the dog is terrible. He's eating everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's like well <laughs> when did you get him oh a week before we started the album cycle you're like okay yeah that's that's a lot to leave on your partner so i'm, I'm happy i was here for it. it it was a good move man when mike does something you go you go you jump in with both feet you're gonna notice a running theme here <laughs> <laughs> well we've got uh, a garage to fill let's fill it we yeah got a house to fill let's fill it let's I, let's go I to have, town i absolutely have we'll get into it man <laughs> you should see my garage right now there's fishing kayaks now that's my new that latest obsession that's been kind of side railed for the moment as a result of you know having a baby but i uh beginning all this man i started snowboarding again got into fishing as i was as a kid but like now with the intent of the same intent we have with our work right it's like okay if i'm gonna fish i'm gonna be the best possible fisherman that i can be just became absolutely obsessed maybe to an unhealthy point but you know there's worse addictions um and i noticed something that was kind of funny and i was um, i was doing some work here and there just to try and you know keep keep the lights on um but i wasn't getting what i needed and then this whole thing of fishing came about and it's interesting because with fishing you have an idea then you have to prepare that idea then you have to work at that idea and learning how to carry it out. And then at the end, you get the payoff catching something. And that kind of filled so many voids for me because so much of our work, when you think about it, is like, okay, you have an idea, you have a design, you do the prep work, you put all the systems in place, you work the system and, you know, in rehearsals, and then you get it to go out and you get the reward of the show. The idea of incubating an idea in your head and then seeing it come alive, I think is the one thing you need to figure out somewhere in your life you can do that um if you're not going to be working because if you don't it's things can get dark man things can get dark pretty quickly yeah yeah i hear you well we all have to keep our brains busy especially when we go from 110 percent you know working 20 hour days to not at all yeah we're, we're it's really for, jarring for speed we're built for speed and unfortunately you know when you come off the road like obviously it's 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 a mental illness can be pretty prevalent in our business but at the same time you can't get mad at the same thing that that brought you the fruition of you know getting getting a decent job or being involved in a project that you you feel is really important however big or small it is so as much as it can be a burden to carry when you're off the road it's just it just has to be directed you just need to put it somewhere yeah. When you took the six months off, did you have any sort of assurances that you were going to be able to return to, to full tilt work after I, that six months? I did. I had a, like a guaranteed three, a possibly a fourth. Um, so guaranteed three album cycles starting uh, to the point where rise against, you know, we were, we were in design mode. We were getting ready. They were going to take off in May. Um, Disturbed was getting ready to go back out uh, and I was going to go out and do that one um, myself. 
because on the, in that uh, in that camp, I'm just a programmer operator. Scott Holthouse is the designer, so I was going to go and do that for Scott and uh, Billy Talent. Believe it or not, we had the show program designed and in C containers when we got the word. So there was no doubt in my mind uh, throughout the whole six months, like, oh, no problem. You know, this is this is a safe time to do it. Um, <laughs> boy, was I wrong. Wow. Yeah, I guess uh, it goes to show that there are no 100% guarantees. No, there isn't. It, it was like, it was um, a tough a tough pill to swallow because I never really wanted to take the time off. I almost kind of did it, uh, in, like, begrudgingly, just like, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do what everyone's been preaching to me for a while. People who I trust saying, you know, slow down, take take stock of life. Then when it happened, I almost wanted to call all of them and say, "See, I told you so. I knew this would happen." <laughs> I can only imagine that was kind of a hit being a, having that even in the truck ready to go, and then just watching it fizzle away. Uh, I can only imagine that affected you. Yeah, man, it was it was a bit of a hit. It it. Uh, it was a bit of a hit, but it was overshadowed by the fact that uh, I had some things going on that I hadn't dealt with. I, I hadn't learned that sit on the beach mentality yet. I was struggling through it. I was I was faking it. I was trying to pretend like I was happy, like the time off was great. I didn't feel more rested. and I didn't feel like I fixed anything. So a few weeks after I got the news that we weren't going out, it was like, okay, great. This is a second chance. You know, don't screw this one up. Figure Figure it out for real this time. Oh, I'm, I'm really glad to hear you explain it the same way I do. After sitting on the beach for an hour, my wife would be re- more relaxed and I would be more anxious. 100%. She wouldn't understand exactly why. I'm like, well, because we just wasted an hour. We could have been doing something. And her, her response would be brilliant. She's like, what better thing could you have been doing? Like, I don't know. Something that made me feel busier and <laughs> you know, it, it takes you a long time to realize, oh, maybe sitting on the beach for an hour is the best thing we could be doing. It absolutely is. Like I said, it's just about figuring out how your personality works in that framework. And when it's just described to you as sitting on the beach, yeah, that, that does, doesn't do it for me, man. It still doesn't. I don't want to compare sitting on a beach for an hour to uh, 12 months of pandemic isolation, but I hope I'm not overstating that that comparison if anybody's getting what I'm picking up there. So... I think you hit it right on the head. I think Thanks. everyone, everyone's, everyone's dealing with it in the same way. It's whether your wife wants you to sit on the beach or whether you need to learn how to sit at home for a night and watch TV. Because I, I know that even that has been trying for me in the past. Do you think it was the hustle and bustle of the entertainment industry, the roadie lifestyle, the constant traveling that, that made you interested in the entertainment industry? I don't think so at all. I think from a young age, I was always built in a way that was like very obsessive. I'm chronically ADHD. Hyperfocus has always in a place where I felt where I'm the most clear mentally speaking. I know that there's a ton of other LDs out there that feel this way. And even though we're all kind of different, this podcast has taught me we are all the same. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you. I did not realize how many ADHD, ADD people there are in this industry. It's, it's kind of a thing. Keep resurfacing. You kind of need to be, I don't know how many, like the hyper-focus um, thing is, is something that just comes in, in handy when you're trying to be diligent, when you're trying to program. I don't know how many people would uh, mislabel a layout and be so hyper-focused that it will, you know, nag at them until it's fixed. But I find my hyper-focus really, really helps. It's hard to manage though. Yeah, this this industry does cater to all of the ADHD benefits you can you can really take time to deep dive into all of your characteristics absolutely and we get rewarded for them here so the problem is snowballs even more personally but professionally you keep getting rewarded for it so it's hard to to uh to villainize it because i don't think it's a bad thing i just i just think it's a matter of making it fit within a framework it's fulfilling. I have to admit, I hope that I can funnel my son who's also been diagnosed with ADHD that I hopefully I can funnel him into something like this where he can really be rewarded for his ailments. Yeah. You know, I've had a couple of family friends that have asked me to speak with their kids who have ADHD and the, and the parents kind of are looking at it like, um, I don't want to say a negative thing, but, but not a good thing, right? Like something mm-hmm. their, their son's going to have to cope with. And I could try and explain to the, the one child in particular, I'm like, you've been given a superpower. Like you're, you're Superman. 
there's certain things you're going to be able to do that aren't other people aren't able to do. Like we're going to do really well in scenarios like a race car driver where you're going very fast, but you might struggle with going slow. And that's okay. What you have to realize is that you need to take time to turn the engine off and figure out what that is. Uh, I used to cope with it more with marijuana use um, because that's pretty, pretty effective. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, a little self-diagnosing there. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to give that advice to a kid. So, you know, if they, <laughs> <laughs> if they can find a way to turn the engine off, whether it's, you know, um, if it's television, hopefully it's something that's informative. If, if it's a book, hopefully it's something that they're learning from. I think any reading is great, even though that hasn't been my particular path. Um, but, but understanding that it's, it's, not, um, it's not a bad thing. I think the more we learn about this, and I'm not the most studied person on ADHD, but the more we learn about this, the more we learn how to educate our youth who have these problems, the more you're going to see uh, excellence coming out of these people opposed to um, them being looked at like they have some kind of a problem. Like how many kids are in school right now who have trouble sitting at a desk and when I was growing up there, we were told we were problems. You know, we weren't, we weren't told we had anything special to offer. In fact, we were led to believe that we were the opposite, but I look back and I see a lot of these people and, they, and they've, there's kind of two distinctions. It's that whole thing you're talking about, about diving in head first. It's the, the, it's a characteristic of us, right? Like you dive in head first and you see these people being hyper successful or you see them finding really unhealthy ways to deny it and, and not cope with it through, you know, what have you, whether it's drug use, whether it's, mm -hmm. I, I hate to say, it, but generally addiction. Yeah. This is actually a very worthy tangent to go down. It has to do with the education system. We're dealing with a very outdated education system where children are taught to come in, sit in their assigned seat, do the work till the bell rings, then take a break, return to work at your assigned seat, do the work unquestionably, then wait for the bell ring, go home. Yeah. Now, how would Chris at the age of, that you're at, how would you cope with that now? You'd probably be struggling to get out of that box, even at, at your, at, or, or at our age. Like, I mean, yeah. it's not something that goes away. During the industrial revolution, that's what we needed. We needed those people to go do their monotonous work, then go home, pay their taxes. We are not in that world anymore. We're not being paid on labor we're being paid for good ideas and creativity and constructive collaboration. That is why we need to break away from that mold. And we, you know, we, I'm not going to say we need to cater to ADHD, but we need to celebrate this. It's not a disorder anymore. It's an advantage. I completely agree. And, and the, the few really passionate discussions I've had with youth um, by way of their parents have been so productive and so rewarding for me because it's a, it's a good thing. You're just going to have to learn how to, to deal with your superpower. Like that's, that's the kind of analogy or example I give to kids. It's yeah. super, Superman couldn't fly around the world 365 days a year. You still see him in a suit sometimes. Like you're going to have to figure it out. And I certainly, I, I I'm very self-deprecating. I don't think highly of myself at all, which is, which is another problem that we don't need to get into, but you kind of have to, to realize that it's not a bad thing. Yeah. I constantly have to remind myself and my son, that it's not him failing the education system. It's the education system failing him just because they can't keep him interested. It's not a fault of his. It's a fault of the, the education system. He, he could be moving fa farther ahead so much faster. 100%. And you know what? I hope that he finds those one or two mentors, teachers that know how to handle them because that's, that's all it takes. It doesn't take the entire education and, uh, system to change. It, it just takes a few and then you're kind of out of the woods. Uh, could we make it better? Oh, absolutely. But it, that one or two people can really be the difference. That was what yeah. it was for me. Yeah. I've firmly believed that if we funnel that hyper attention and that, that insane amount of information gathering, we can turn them into superheroes, like he's mentioned. Uh, maybe to the point that they'll get to work for their very favorite band. Absolutely. Another way of looking at it would be, I would hope I, the biggest thing for me, as you know, I've only been a father two and a half weeks, so 
I can't talk too much, but uh, I hope that my child finds something that they're passionate about. Number one, over money, over everything else. I hope they love what they do. So if you look at our schooling system, you know, of course, we want them to learn uh, the ones and zeros and the ABCs and all that stuff. But furthermore, don't you want them to find something they're passionate about? And ADHD really kind of starts to show you what a kid's passionate about. So you automatically have a window into those kids' minds. What makes them tick? Like capitalize on that, you know? I can only imagine that when you put your mind to something, you go for it until it's been achieved and you see it as a failure until you have achieved that end goal. For sure. And I think a lot of people that know me outside of this industry um, might have seen me differently growing up, but anyone I BMXed with or anyone I played bands with or anyone I did something with I loved I was the workaholic I was the intense guy in the room I was the guy who always wanted to do more and do better but I'll tell you I don't think I was perceived that way by people outside of my passion areas would you say that you applied that information to your career let's say some of the bands you were let's say protest the hero was that something that you had a goal or did that just fall into your lap See, that's, that's, that's a fun one to talk about. Uh, that's a band that is just so personal to me because they're all over the place. The, the music is off the walls, complicated, if you've ever heard any of it. And I always kind of, from the first time I touched a lighting console, thought, wow, how cool would it be, you know, to work for that band? Kind of put some feelers out, but it never happened. Um, but I got some other opportunities and I was working for a band called Big Wreck. Money wasn't great at the time, but like they did something cool. They were, they're, they're great musicians. They have cool music. I thought there was a good opportunity to do good lighting. So I'm going to jump all over that. I'm going to be all in as we discussed. Now, the funny thing is, is towards the end of that tour, I'm out in front of house. I think I'm doing, you know, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. I think everything's coming together. Uh, and the tour ends and didn't really have anything lined up after that. I get an email like a week later. Uh, from management. Uh, I think it was SRO, who was like Russia's management company at the time. And they're like, hey, a gentleman by the name of Luke Hoskin has reached out via email. Are you okay with us passing along your contact? And I'm thinking to myself, Luke Hoskin, that sounds familiar. Then I'm thinking even harder and I'm going, that's the lead guitar player from Protest the Hero. So I open the email back up and I promptly hold caps lock and I'm like, yes, give him my contact. And he, uh, he reached out and said, you know, that we had loved the show. He said he felt that he could see through my work, that I was passionate, really all in, just because of the, the intricacy of even that big rec show. and was wondering if I'd be willing to work for him. And it kind of it came full circle. Wow, that's a Cinderella story right there. Total Cinderella story. Like, one of the things I'm most proud of. Not one of the things I, I, I'm most known for, because it's not like they're the biggest band in the world. But to me, they're, they're the biggest thing. They're the Rolling Stones of my world, you know. Do you think that was kind of an unintentional set intention? Is that something that would just kind of exist in the back of your subconscious? Like, I want to do this, and then, and then it happened? I mean, I don't know about you, but I think that what you put out into the world kind of seems to come back because I don't think it's a coincidence that my passions, the kind of music I was into, or just the level of excellence I wanted to achieve – I don't ever think I was deserving of it because, again, I was, like, self-deprecating. But I found my career heading down these paths that couldn't have been a coincidence because I was working for those bands that I wanted to work for. And it was by no way of me saying, hey, hire me. It just seemed to kind of happen that way. And whether that was, you know, someone completely uh, different from what I listened to, like Iggy Azalea I worked for for a point in time. Um, Getting that job was a result of, you know, me aligning myself with people who had similar mentalities, similar kind of things going on. And through the woodwork, I kind of saw all these things, even by way of an artist like Iggy Azalea, which has nothing to do with it. Things following suit, like just the Disturbs of the World, the Rise Against, the Billy Talents, all the bands that yell. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, I kind of saw all those things happening. So I, I do think that it's not a coincidence. And I do think what you put out you're kind of going to get back we don't all get to work for our favorite band and i don't think you have to like the music of a band to like them effectively i think you just have to respect it yeah yeah that is something that we definitely need to discuss more you have to be very aware of what you're putting out there because you're going to get it back oh 100 uh, for better or for worse yeah, when you're putting it out that even if it's existing in your subconscious for 10 years eventually it's going to come back to you yeah, there, there's no way it's all a coincidence, right? Like, 
it, it just seems to happen. And, and you see, uh, not to go negative with it, but you see the same thing happening for maybe people who had a really rough attitude, maybe had a rougher upbringing. They're a little more uh, prone to crime and things like that. You see them getting going down the wrong paths. And it's not because they're, they're reaching out and saying, hey, I want to be part of that sloppy crew. But you kind of see them start falling into to the opposite, which is like in the more negative positions, that whole idea of, you know, putting out there what you want to get back. You got to be careful, like you said, because you're going to get it back, whether it's positive or negative. And that can be changed. It just takes one gig, one connection, one day where you had a good attitude, you know? Yeah, I've seen people who complain and complain and complain about a certain gig. And the next thing you know, they get fired because they were such a complainer. And then they end up on a gig that is really complain worthy. You know, they've really been pushed down. You're like, see, everything sucks. Like, well, you kind of made it suck. You were in, you, if you'd have been a little more grateful for what you had, you'd realize that that wasn't very complain worthy. Absolutely. I had a really interesting conversation uh, with an unnamed person where they were kind of uh, saying, you know, I'm not happy with the gigs I'm on and things aren't going my way. And I'm asking them all like, why, you know, what's, what's going on? Are you you showing up late or just kind of prodding to see if, because there must be something wrong. People don't just say you're not doing a good job. There's usually a reason. And he's like, well, I've showed up late a few times and I don't really care for that gig. And it's kind of crap. And I'm thinking, I'm like, well, I got to tell you the honest to God's truth and I'm a little intense, but I have done some really crappy gigs. I've done bar mitzvahs. I've done weddings. I think a lot of us have, you know, mm-hmm. and I took those jobs as serious as when I was out doing media for Super Bowl. Um, I really did. I, I took them just as serious. I can remember a time. <laughs> I was doing dry ice at a bar mitzvah and the dad is yelling at me because there's not good enough coverage for dry ice. And and I was like, I need to get this right because this is the gig I've been hired to do. Um, And I took it that seriously. And it was the same people who I was doing like those bar mitzvahs for or weddings or whatever else. They were the same people that put me on the spot to do their bigger. Let's say at that time it was uh, an EDM gig, like their big raves those same people saw that I wasn't willing to complain and they pushed me forward for a better position. They pushed me forward because they had been in the trenches. They had seen how bad it can get. Uh, so if you, I said to him, I'm like, if you're not taken, and it was a big gig that this guy was on. It wasn't like it was a bar mitzvah. Uh, if you're not, <laughs> like it wasn't at all. <laughs> and he's going, are you for real? You really took it that serious? And I'm thinking maybe I'm, maybe I'm crazy. And maybe I sound a little over the top, but at the time, yeah, I was taking it that seriously. Cause I, I knew that those guys I was working for were my gatekeepers. Uh, they were going to be the difference. You know, they were going to say, well, we can send you to the next wedding or we can send you out to do this floor package for Tiesto. And I knew that I knew there was a payoff, but even if you don't know that there's a payoff, that shouldn't make a difference. You should just go to work and try really hard. Yeah. We rarely know about the payoffs. They're usually hidden from us. They are usually. Yeah, nobody ever dangles the carrot and like, hey, if you do really good at this dry ice thing, I've got Tiesto for you. Dude, I remember it like it was yesterday, man. I'm thinking like, okay, I'll do better. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll try harder. <laughs> yeah. You're never going to get the ladder presented to you so clearly. as like, hey, if you're really good at this dry ice, you're going to do a floor package for Tiesto. And the next thing you know, you're going to go nine inch nails. That rarely presents itself. No, but once you learn that you won't, you steer into it. It's it's it happens pretty quick, man. Like people are desperate for uh, for talented people who have skills, or even people who are just have a good attitude. Period. So if you're putting that stuff out there, like it doesn't take much more than a year until you watch someone that same kid you saw doing dry ice. You're like, oh, how do you get that gig? Oh, how do you get that gig? Like it, it's not something that takes five years of of slugging it out. You know, it's not uh, it's not as bad as everyone makes it out to be. Running dry ice, did you feel like a wannabe then? You're like, oh, I really want to be an LD, but here I am running dry ice. You know, I didn't uh, because I had saw what happens to guys that like skipped steps in the industry. I think mm-hmm. we touched, talked about it briefly in an email, but I, I worked at the cool house. That was my first gig. Uh, like loading trucks, man. Like yep. I came out of audio production school. I thought I was going to be this big record producer got a song on the radio and i'm like all right here comes the money (laughs) i'm into it man i've made it sure as shit not making a dollar i'm like okay i'll reach out to a contact and go load some trucks and uh 
started hanging around there. And one day guys operating a lighting desk and he kind of said to me, you know, I'm going to be sick next week. You want to do this? And I'm thinking, what, how am I going to do that? I don't know lighting. And he's going, well, you just have to have timing. So I'm thinking, okay, that sounds cool. So I show up, I hit the blackout button once fall in love. I think we've all gone through that moment of the first time you touched a light. Yep. Falling in love with it right away. And then sure shit. I'm like now, okay, I'm an operator, you know, you know, I'm running a punt page in the cool house. I'm, I'm running the nightclub. There's, there's 300 lights in here. Like I've made it. I can press the button. The lights flash. I've made it. Then, you know, cue couple years maybe even down the road it's like okay well i've seen shows now and i'm starting to pay attention to lighting now and now i know i want to be an ld and i'm asking questions like hey those three lights that are chopping one two three really hard can we just slow them down and make them softer and the people i'm standing with are going well no i don't know how to do that and i'm thinking well that's that's weird because you're like the best operator that we have and how come you guys don't know how to do this stuff so instead of like complaining I started seeing companies come through with guys that knew how to do this stuff and their gigs weren't as, as, as high profile or as fun as doing, you know, have an LCD sound system coming in get to do the opener. They were bar mitzvahs and weddings and whatever else, but they were willing to let me go out, roll the console, flip the console, run the DMX program, the shows. Uh, and I was able to learn. And even if it was less money, I was learning. So I always kind of saw that there was a payoff to these like shittier gigs. It never was, um, never was a negative thing for me. I knew that if I got spoiled, it wouldn't end well. For the, the non-Canadian audience, cool house was this converted warehouse complex in Toronto that had maybe four or five different rooms, 11, 11 different rooms. Uh, depending on when you visited, sometimes half of the, half of them were closed. Some of them, you know, depending, it would, it would fluctuate down near the water. Each room was very distinct. Like you could go in one room. It was a, it would be a nightclub one night. It would be something completely different the next night. It really didn't have an identity except a place for all the ragamuffin kids to go to in Toronto. And every single night would be something different. It was very interesting, little quirky place. Depending on when you would have visited, it would have been called the cool house possibly the government. I think it had a couple different names. It was the cool house slash government, which were the two like main club room slash main concert hall. But then they had like nine other rooms buried in the trenches. Like you can get lost in this place. It was really strange. You had the like tech house room, the, the hip hop room, the top 40 room, the balcony. And there was an operator in each one of those rooms. Right. So how often does a young lighting person actually get to socialize with on any given night between like seven and 10 other operators doesn't happen really. It's kind of the last of its kind in our country, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the nightclub scene is becoming where there's just one person running a mega structure now, instead of 11 people running 11 rooms. Yeah. I'm thank I'm thankful for that place. It was, it was the wild West, man. If you're going to be a touring guy learning to handle yourself in all those situations where, you know, like, as you know, there's always beer on the bus. There's always somebody doing something they shouldn't be doing. And if you don't know how to handle yourself in that environment, stay away from the things you shouldn't be doing or should be doing, or you can't handle. If you can't do your job within that wild West environment, truly do your job justice, then you're not going to bode well once you get out on the road. Cause you just have to get trapped in that situation once that you don't know how to deal with. And, and you're on a plane home because you didn't know how to have three beers and, and not talk shit about the designer. Right on. So let's have a little discussion on when you felt like you had made it. When did you feel like that you were established in the industry? When that happens, I will let you know. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. We're always, always feel like we're halfway up the ladder. Don't we? Yeah. I don't think I'll ever uh, feel that way because I was just having a passionate discussion with Tara last night. I won't say what prompted it, but kind of feel like when you're comfortable, that's the beginning of death like i it's a very maybe even toxic thing it kind of can keep you from being happy at times but the second you feel like you've done it or made it it's okay to pat yourself on the back and say you've done a good job but um i don't know when i when i'll feel that way okay well let's try and be a little bit more specific when did you change your job title from operator to programmer slash director uh that happened as a result of uh you know it's funny um I think it was AJ Penn 
it was AJ Penn. I was starting to program some tours and operate, but you know, I, I was just getting by on smaller rigs and stuff, but I, I was really happy about it. But uh, AJ Penn called me up and said, Hey, I, I've heard good things. I want you to come out and program and operate one of my tours. And, and I, and this was very blind at the time and definitely was the wrong attitude. But I said, listen, AJ, I, I would love to, but I'm not really interested in, in running someone else's show at that point. Cause I thought running someone else's show would, would make me comfortable. Um, <laughs> But could more could I could not have been more wrong. So he goes, just because you said that, he goes, I know you're the right guy for the job. He goes, <laughs> why don't you come out and let me show you some stuff? And I'm like, okay, this guy seems to want to help me further my skill. Not knowing as much as I do now about who AJ Penn is, what he's done, how how amazing he is, right? So getting to work with him and seeing the way he builds files and how the way he approaches design, that just totally turned things upside down for me. It made me realize what I had to do to be taken seriously. Uh, he showed me the wheel that I would would then try and start building on, building on my own. Um, and after that, the gigs got a little bigger and I was able to take on more of a designer programmer role, actually handle the, uh, the job. Uh, to a point where I felt comfortable calling myself a programmer, uh, operator, designer. Cool. I have to take a little, another tangent here. I've never heard that before. I've never thought of it that way. I've never thought that anybody didn't see that running other people's show was the natural progression. Totally. But you said it. I could see how you're like, oh yeah, I don't do that. Like that, it would make you feel like a cover band. You're like, oh, I don't sing other people's songs. I don't run other people's shows. That's the world I came from, right? Like being in bands when I was younger, I was thinking, okay, I'm I'm on the path here to become as the greatest. I want to be so good. Uh, that was my idea. I wanted to be great. And I thought, okay, if I just go take time off to to run someone else's show, I'm not going to learn. And that that was truly like good and from good, good intent. Uh, a place of good intents. I, I thought I could be better if I stuck it out on my own. Um, but man, if you ever get the chance to sit in a room with a guy who has done it more than you, take the chance. Yeah. For any of my people uh, listening, that is the natural progression. You get the phone call to go and run somebody else's show and you take it. You don't put your ego aside or any sort of false conceptions that, uh, that you're a, an artist you know, you have to run somebody else's show before you get to run your own show. Yeah. That's, you you want to see somebody else build a wheel before you try and reinvent it. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great analogy there. So I came up from this industry through the American system. You came up through the Canadian system. And then we kind of switched. You came from Canada to the U.S. Which one do you prefer? Which market do you prefer working in? Ah, interesting. I prefer working in the American market. Uh Although I have a, like, I love Canadian artists. Um, the re I preferred had, I, I got my preference in coming up in the Canadian market and then followed by working in the American market. I think that's really the best of both worlds for me because in our country, we're not a third world country by any means. We have lots of budget and we have lots of big artists, but not to the extent of the Americans and, and the gigs just aren't as available. So as a result, you kind of have to be a little faster, a little quicker, able to do a little more with less at the start of your career in Canada to kind of start to make a little bit of a name for yourself. You know, the, the gigs are fewer and far between. I'll never mm -hmm. forget like having a, a tech come through. I was running uh, Danforth Music Hall, like one of the house ops there. And I forget the name of the artist that came through, but the lighting tech is, is complaining to me. He's an American, American guy, and he's complaining to me about, doesn't matter who the artist was, he's complaining to me about um, this very large artist that he worked for and how he quit, and he, he doesn't want to do that anymore. And as a young Canadian kid, I thought, holy shit, I would love the ability to be able to complain about that big of a gig. And that really made me tune into, okay, if I can appreciate the gigs as much as I do here and get down in the American market and apply that same level of uh, respect for the jobs... Uh, I thought that I could go a long way. That's not to say that I, I don't think the Americans appreciate their jobs. They absolutely do, but there's a lot more opportunity in, uh, in the U S. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's accurate. There's, there's so many different markets there in Canada. There's only a dozen markets, maybe. Yeah. More. Yeah. Unless you're, uh, you know, uh, doing the, uh, we've all done them, but the, uh, the hockey rink runs in the middle of the winter where you can maybe stretch it to 15 or 16 shows. Yeah. You know, we all have to take those hits there. Uh, it makes for a long day. The towns are very excited to have the, the, the shows in there. 
Yeah, absolutely. There, there's something really special about working in your own backyard. And I don't do it that much anymore. Uh, I work for pretty, pretty predominantly American artists. Um, so I don't get to come home anymore. But it's even cooler when I get to uh, show up back home with one of the U.S. bands and uh, kind of, you know, it's like show and tell, man. It's like, hey, man, look what, look what I'm back with. Look at this awesome artist that's come out of the U.S. And it's even sweeter when it's one, one of your own from our country. Um, there's just uh, by way of less population, there's not as, as many artists, of course, right? It's no slight on either country. We're smaller. That's just a fact. Yeah. So with the pandemic, obviously crossing the border is not as easy. So you and I are kind of limited to the Canadian market. Mm-hmm. How are you? How are you keeping busy during the pandemic? I'll, uh, I'll, I'll explain that. But uh, just to touch on something else, I don't know about you, but uh, we uh, living in Canada, we have to apply for visas to work in the u.s a lot of my american brothers aren't so privy to how hard this can be so i renewed my o1 visa which just came up in may oh man that's oh, a that's, that's a price tag of around between five to seven thousand dollars depending on your lawyer which is now running down on its clock while i sit at home ouch uh but i'm not sending just... love brother that is tough it's that okay. Hey, at least I was able to qualify for it. And I was able to qualify before because it's hard to get. You do have to prove a distinction um, before they'll even let you in and then pay the money. It's, it's a lot of, there's a lot of labor that goes into it. I can only imagine it would be more expensive if you let it lapse. I don't, I, I think that it's about the same. I mean, I okay. know that there's some firms that will do like a renewal fee. That's a little cheaper. Uh, and there's others that don't handle it that way. It's all such smoke and mirrors. Oh, um, yeah. We agree you, there. You could spend a lifetime learning the system only to have one border guard tell you, no, that's not the way it works today. That's a whole nother podcast. But yes, that is so <laughs> frustrating. It is. So I have no choice. I have to work within Canada. And being that I was off for six months before everyone else, um, I kind of had to put my feet to the ground quicker than everyone else. Because I, I, I might have been willing to just hold out Although now I don't think that that's, you know, necessarily the best idea. You do have to kind of figure out plan B's and plan C's and diversification is never bad. Don't get me wrong. What we do for a living, I think is the coolest thing in the whole world. There's nothing I'd rather do, but there are other areas where our skills are super useful. So I decided to kind of jump head first into TV and film. Cool. Um, yeah, it is cool. Very different. Um, I actually have taken a role as a shooting programmer over at Star Trek, which is like, holy crap, man. <laughs> One of the coolest things you could ever do if you're doing TV and film. But um, Is that filmed? Is that in Toronto or is that in Niagara? That's in Toronto. So I'm, I'm commuting, which is probably another podcast of complaining. But um, it's, up in, <laughs> it's up in Toronto. Um, and to any of my brothers and sisters out there who are like struggling for work, the, the TV and film industry of Toronto has come back very strong. The, the locals and the unions have done a very good job and the productions uh, have done a very good job at mitigating risk and putting testing systems in place. And they've able to get people back to work. Unfortunately, I think I thought it would be obvious, but a lot of people just don't realize how handy all of our skills are in that world. Now, I'm not saying you have to aspire to be a TV film guy for the rest of your life, but if you're if you're struggling for work, you're thinking about what you should do. That's I struggled to think of a reason not to say that that's the first place that you should be looking in Canada. And as the U.S. starts to open up, I do think that will be one of the first places that they should be looking as well. Yeah, I'm actually going to be doing a podcast very soon on that exact topic because the broadcast world is not just L.A. anymore. No, this, this pandemic is allowing a lot of broadcast to just pop up in garages and studios all over. Uh, even mom and pop lighting shops have switched over to broadcast and there, there's still a lot of movement there. There's a ton of movement. People are consuming content at an unbelievable rate, sitting home and you know, watching Netflix. Uh, and I, I can't speak too much to the procedure and protocol of the unions and the productions because my head is in lighting. I'm not really thinking about that, but from an outside perspective looking in being in the building they're doing a good job they're, they're mitigating risk they're implementing testing they have contact tracing this is bulletproof i shouldn't say bulletproofing because i don't want to jinx myself but this is you know insulating them from further risk um and i just don't i'm not ready to 
go back to our industry and blindly think, okay, well, this will never happen again. It could happen in a different way. So it's great for anybody out there to find another area where your skills are of use. I'm not saying it's going to be as cool as touring or it's going to be the exact same thing, but you're definitely going to feel rewarded to, to use those skills. Plan B, if nothing else, it's something that's always available to all of us. Yeah, it's a great plan B. And again, it, it's it's awesome, man. It's great to, to walk on a set and and carry out tasks, even if it might not be your vision, but if you're a programmer to care, get on set and have your gaffer need a bunch of really crazy cues all super fast and like the hair stands up on your neck. It's just like when you're out at front of house before doors open, right? There's not a lot of time. You need to do cool stuff. And I'm not, I'm not slagging on anyone in the TV film industry, but like we're built for speed from where we come from. So if you're competent, you're going to do a good job. Yeah. How's uh, what's your daily life like then? Are you commuting every day or is it once a week? How's your, how's your COVID protocol? It's like anywhere between five and six days a week. And, you know, TV film days are long, not quite as long as like a concert day. But the thing is, is we get, you know, the afternoon, usually after lunch to chill out, maybe on the road. Whereas when you're working TV, you might get an hour here and there, as they say, hurry up and wait. And then all of a sudden, boom, you're, you're working like a madman just to get the shot ready. So it's comparable from an hourly perspective. Cool. Sounds like you're keeping busy. That's refreshing to hear. It's very uplifting. Yeah, I think it's it's important. You know, you just got to look for those areas where your skills can be of use. I've seen a lot of people that are are suffering, and I was suffering through depression in the summer as well. But you got to figure out a way to apply yourself to something. We are built. We're doers. We have to do something. Um, and if you're struggling with that, the thing that fixed it for me was picking up the phone, calling friends telling them exactly what you're going through. Cause if you, if you think that there's no way out and you think that there's nothing that can help, you'd be crazy not to just listen to what other people have to say. It was maybe two phone calls that, that changed my whole attitude. And there were the phone calls to people, not even in the lighting world. It was a rigging guy that was like, well, dude, stop feeling sorry for yourself. You should be in TV and film. They need board ops. And I'm thinking, well, I don't have any contacts. And he goes, I'll make two phone calls. And it was the last thing I ever thought was going to happen, but it, it turned it all around. So, if anyone's struggling, reach out to your friends. And if that doesn't work, reach out to more friends. And if that doesn't work, reach out to someone you've never talked to before because you know they're not doing much. That is great advice. That is really good advice. So I'm going to do something that I haven't done before. We're almost out of time. But uh, one of the things that you mentioned in our emails is that you wanted to talk about the effect this podcast has had on you. And I hate to ask for, for accolades, <laughs> you know, point blank, but I, I'm, I'm so interested to hear it because I know that you're doing a lot of commuting is what how are you listening to the podcast and how is it how is it helping you you nailed it right on the head man with the commute this is like my back of the bus chat after the show it sets me straight it lets me know i'm not alone because when you're when you're locked up in your house if you're not talking to anyone and i think a lot of us got into the habit of like isolating right yeah um this podcast just allowed you to have that uh, that kind of conversation at the end of the day, and uh, whether you're, com you're complaining about something or you're celebrating our personal traits that maybe aren't so appreciated in our everyday lives, listening to this podcast has been really nice just to be like get the mental pat down, like, okay, I'm not alone. There's other people out there. We're figuring it out. Maybe this approach didn't work for me, but if it didn't listen to another episode, because I guarantee you there's going to be one guy on this podcast. That is exactly you. And that, 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 that's, that's happened to me a few times now. And that's why I reached out. I'm like, Oh man, I got to get on this. This is the best. <laughs> I agree. I am realizing that I had blinders on. I thought that everybody's experience in the industry was more like mine until I started asking people about their experiences. And this is, this podcast has been so uplifting for me and enlightening. Like, Oh, we all get into this industry in so many different ways. And for so many different reasons uh, we're, we're really a ragtag bunch of pirates. Oh, it's totally true. We're not, we're not built for life on land, my friend. No, this is tough for me. Just even, and I, I will never, be less than grateful for all the, the opportunities I've had here, but coming to the same room, sitting in front of the same computer day after day is really taxing. This is not what we're, we're not designed for this. Well, I hope the podcast is breaking it up for you too. It's, it sounds like you have fun doing it. It comes off that way. I really appreciate it. I, I have my days. There's days that I, uh, 
they'll sit down and be like, I don't want to do a podcast today. And then in the first five minutes of the podcast, I'll be like, oh yeah, this is why I do this. That is the most interesting thing I'm going to hear all week. For sure. For sure. It's, it's nice to make a new friend. This has been really, uh, really fun. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate your time. This has been great. Awesome. Cheers, Chris. 